KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, what happened in the election in L.A., starting with the defeat of the sheriff, Alex Villanueva. Gustavo Ariano, the L.A. Times indispensable columnist, will comment. Also later in the show, the Georgia Senate runoff campaign has begun. The nation's Joan Walsh has just returned from Atlanta. She says Trump's candidate, Herschel Walker, looks like a loser. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, it seems to me the biggest achievement of the Democrats in the midterms was protecting the 2024 election. Uh, Voters uh, defeated the Republican candidates who were election deniers, the ones who might have uh, tried to reverse the results of the election in 2024. That's governors, secretaries of state, and most of the the important Republicans who lost close elections conceded. Normally, this wouldn't be big news, but in Nevada, Adam Laxalt conceded to Catherine Cortez Masto. In the Arizona Senate race, Blake Masters conceded to Mark Kelly. That means they accept the results of the election, which makes it much harder for the Republican candidate for governor who lost, Carrie Lake, the nightmarish Trumper, the fact that uh, Blake Masters conceded the Senate race there makes it harder for her to claim there was something wrong with the voting there, especially, I learned from the New York Times on Wednesday, since the biggest vote getter in Arizona was the Republican running for state treasurer. So the good news is we get to do this again. We get to have an election in 2024 and the results won't be overturned by the Republicans. I wonder what you rank as the uh, big achievements of the Democrats in the midterm. Well, I, I think that is major. I think with the possible exception of Michael Moore, I was surprised <laughs> yes. and gladdened by the uh, results. It would have been nice if the Democrats had been able to win four or five more House seats and We can uh, actually attribute the difference to the redistricting that went on uh, in uh, in Florida uh, at Ron DeSantis's insistence and in New York when the uh, legislature's redistricting was overturned by a judge who created, gave all kinds of possibilities on Long Island and upstate to Republicans who might not otherwise have won. And uh, what about the way that Democrats defeated predictions that inflation was going to destroy them uh, on on Election Day? Well, a couple of things. Obviously, uh, the abortion issue was paramount in many voters' minds and, and turned out, you know, millions of voters who might not otherwise have voted. I I, I think abortion was a factor. I think the threat to democracy, which Joe Biden, to his credit, kept raising as a paramount issue was a factor. But there's one other issue that I found buried deep in the exit polls, which I think was a third factor. Way down in the exit poll, respondents were asked, how confident were they that they could find a good job? Now, if if there's really, really economic anxiety uh, abroad in the land, You should get, you know, uh, that anxiety should be expressed in that poll. But by two to one, Americans, uh, voting Americans who were disproportionately Republican in this election, said they were uh, confident they could find a good job. And then the next question 
was, are you confident your, your family can keep up meeting expenses? You know, which it goes to the heart of uh, inflation anxiety. But even here, even by a slightly greater two to one margin, people said, yes, they were confident. So what, 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 what does that tell us about inflation? I think that brings us back to sort of what is regarded as the signal governmental act under Biden that is responsible for inflation, which was the $1.9 trillion bill to keep the economy going, adopted without a single Republican vote in Congress early on uh, in 2021. And Larry Summers and the Republicans said, look, this is going to cause inflation. You know, and to a certain degree, they were right. But it also made Americans more economically secure. It guaranteed a robust recovery in which jobs would be plentiful. And uh, given the dynamics of of the economy under that bill, uh, wages kept going up. So the bill actually did pretty much what it was intended to do, which is why we have unemployment at only three and a half percent. And it really kind of changed the way Americans are navigating and are experiencing this economy, even with the level of inflation. So I would argue that that had a positive political effect that no one really was following. No one was counting upon it. You argued a moment ago that it was basically the redistricting that was responsible for the Democratic's uh, losses that give the Republicans maybe a, what, five-seat majority in the House. But there's a lot of complaining going on right now among Democratic uh, House candidates who lost narrowly. Page one of the LA Times on Wednesday, Christy Smith, whose campaign we've talked about many times in Northern LA County, more Democratic district than it had been in the past. Uh, She was challenging an incumbent Trumper Republican who didn't seem to be a good match for that district, and she seems to have lost. She's on page one of the LA Times on Wednesday saying that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the official body that distributes the party's money, failed to give her any money, and that is responsible for her loss. So obviously, the DCCC, as the professionals call it, makes just decisions every week and every day about how to shift the money around. What do you think of uh, Christy Smith's complaint here? Well, two things. First of all, that is a district that a Democrat should be able to take. Biden won it by, I think, slightly in excess of 10 percent. The Republican incumbent only won uh, election in 2020 by like 330 votes. And he is, uh, wants to ban abortion from conception and voted to overturn the election results in the House on January 6th. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think some in the Democratic consulting establishment political world looked at Christy Smith's past candidacy when Biden was able to carry that district by a large margin, but she still lost to Garcia and concluded that she was kind of a lousy candidate. Yeah. So uh, mm-hmm. I suspect her, if, if, assuming she loses this time, which looks like it's the likely outcome, it, it's a combination of the two. And candidate. of course, we would want to know where did the money they didn't give her go? We well, hope it went to someplace that th- they there won. Was, God knows there are a lot of places where the Democrats either won narrowly or, or lost narrowly. So I want to talk about 
Another one of the surprise success stories of the Democratic House races, one that I learned about from New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg, a candidate running in a Republican district in Washington state, a woman named Marie Glusenkamp Perez. The odds that she was going to win this Republican district were rated at 2% by Nate Silver at 538, and yet she won, which makes this kind of the biggest upset anywhere in the country in the House races. And it's worth looking at what happened there. The guy, it's also a very important race because the guy she beat, a Republican named Joe Kent, a right-wing election denier, conspiracy theorist who had challenged the incumbent Republican in that district who had been one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. So the fact that the that this Republican district then rejected uh, this Trumper is especially impressive, and we wonder how she did it. What Michelle Goldberg explained was that Camp Perez is a young mother. She owns an auto repair shop with her husband. They live in a rural county in a house they built themselves because they couldn't get a mortgage. This was part of her story on the campaign trail. She spoke frequently. Uh, about bringing her young son to work because she couldn't find childcare. She also spoke about having a miscarriage and being forced to wake, make her way through a wall of protesters to get medical care at a Planned Parenthood clinic. While the Republican called for a national abortion ban, she appealed to her district's libertarian streak by connecting reproductive rights with gun rights in a promise to, quote, protect our freedoms uh, is this unexpected victory of Marie Glusenkamp Perez in Washington State uh, a model for others in the Democratic Party? Well, in, in certain swing districts, it certainly is. And it has really strong parallels, I think, to the campaign that Fetterman waged uh, in uh, uh, against Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Uh, sort of, uh, she, a lot more than he, actually sort of ran as the most normal person uh, you can imagine, uh, which her Republican opponent clearly was not, uh, and, uh, you know, found all kinds of points of existential connection, I would say, with a lot of people who don't normally uh, vote Democratic. I would also add, I was impressed by the prominence given her uh, stated middle name, Glusenkamp yeah. Perez. She, she, she's German-Latino. Uh, and, uh, or whatever that is, if she was simply Paris, uh, I don't know that that would have, you know, she would have won. I, I actually think, uh, in our, uh, polyglot nation, uh, things like that, uh, often help just like Fiorella LaGuardia's ability to speak Yiddish, uh, <laughs> helped him win the, uh, uh, New York mayorality three times. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in California, a regular feature of this broadcast. The largest strike in the history of higher education in the United States began on Monday when tens of thousands of academic workers at the University of California's 10 campuses walked off the job calling for higher wages and better benefits. Uh, what do you know about the strike at the University of California? Well, these are uh, grossly underpaid teaching assistants, research assistants, and postdocs who honestly do most of the teaching uh, in the UC system. Uh, 
you know, there, there are large lecture classes uh, in which the professors really don't have much opportunity to interact with the students and vice versa. Uh, but then there are smaller sections where that kind of interaction does go on and that's up to the teaching assistants and they do a lot of the grading uh, and, uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, the problem is what used to be regarded as a normal teaching assistant income, which was low under any circumstances, is absurdly low in California where you have all of these campuses in uh, unaffordable metropolitan areas. And so what they're asking for is basically survival wages, which they do not have. Uh, I think there's a survey that showed 30, uh, 50% of them pay, uh, you know, or maybe 30% of them pay more than half of their income to rent. Uh, yeah. That doesn't leave much for, for life as we commonly understand the term. Could we talk about the union here for a minute? The, these employees are represented by the what seemingly unlikely uh, organizers in the United Auto Workers, who've now been doing this for about 10 years in higher education. What does it mean for the UAW to be to be organizing a strike in of university employees? Well, I was told by one of the leaders of uh, one of the four student unions, local unions, UAW locals, that uh, they had originally gone with the UAW because they were enamored of some UAW locals that have been pioneering in civil rights and other issues like 1199 in New York City. But they also, through sheer, I think, dumb luck, <laughs> affiliated with a union that has long had the largest strike fund of any American union. I mean, back in the day, when the UAW was bargaining with the big three and there were no foreign imports and, you know, et cetera. Uh, and there were 300,000 plus UAW members at General Motors if they were all gonna go on strike. And they that's how they got their contracts every, every few years was one of the big three units would strike and set a pattern for all three. Um, you know, the union had to have a hell of a big strike fund to support 300,000 striking auto workers. Well. They still have a big strike fund. That's one of the last legacies of the old UAW. And that's what enables uh, these uh, grad students to go on strike. Uh, they, at, the, at its last convention, the UAW uh, raised its weekly strike benefit to 400 bucks. Uh, that's obviously not a lot of money, but <laughs> the, really, the real story is it's not that much lower than what some of them actually make when they're working. So, um, the UAW was in an unusual position. I mean, this is not only the largest strike we've, we've ever at a, at a college or university, but it's the largest strike in the United States in the last several years. And what it reflects um, is, is the ability of the union to support the strikers in a real material way, and that matters. Well, we always end up here with a little Trump talk, just for fun. Uh, I saw that on Tuesday, Trump said he's going to run for the presidency again. Uh, not really a surprise there, but let's just remember, this is the man who led an insurrection that sought to reverse the results of the 2020 election, says he wants to try again and win the next one fair and square. Uh, I was a little surprised that the audience for his speech did not include any of the mainstream Republican leaders. It was more people like, you know, the pillow guy. I uh, I did not listen to his speech, I must confess. Did you? Yeah, I listen. It's interesting. I listened because I kind of wanted to see how Fox News would play it. Because the Murdochs have now pretty much uh, are, are really 
turned against Trump because they can't get a Republican they want into office if, if Trump runs again. Uh, but it also occurred during Hannity's hour. And Hannity is, you know, has appeared in Trump campaign events. So I wanted to see how they handled it. And basically, I mean, Trump just droned on for almost two hours, but they all, including Fox, cut away after about 45 minutes and started getting commentary in the middle of the speech, you know, uh, which, which uh, not only kind of the, you know, subliminal message was, well, this is old news, nothing is happening here. And look, you can get any five minute snippet from Trump and it's basically the same thing he's always said. So why bother to keep, uh, keep, you know, going. And, and occasionally they would go back to him for three minutes and then come back to the talking heads. So, uh, you know, uh, to a certain degree, uh, uh, you know, thus passes worldly glory or whatever the Latin phrase is. Uh, Paul Krugman had a fascinating headline. He said, Trump is weak, but the Republican establishment is weaker. I wonder if that's the way you see it. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, defeat uh, or failure to win the victory that's anticipated, uh, you know, certainly brings all critics out of the woodwork. And we've seen that uh, for both Mitch McConnell and uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, and, and I think there's a larger problem, which, which I've written about, which is that um, this is a party, you will recall, that had no platform uh, at its 2020 national convention, uh, uh, the, when uh, McConnell, before the election, was asked about what Republicans were, would do if they won, he said, well, just wait until after the election. And uh, Kevin McCarthy came up with a, a statement of principles which really had no, nothing specific in it. I, I think there's a realization that on other than issues where they can raise people's fears, crime, immigration, what have you, they don't really have a popular program, nothing on economics, uh, uh, nothing on social issues like abortion, which they muted. Um, so they're, you know, I mean, they have all kinds of possibilities, but there's a growing rift between what Republican electeds actually want to do and what even people in their own ranks want them to do as the, uh, uh, you know, the results of voting on abortion made uh, made very clear. One more thing uh, about Trump's announcement uh, speech. There was one person who was notably absent. I'm not talking about Mitch McConnell here. I'm talking about Ivanka. She said, quote, this time around, I am choosing to prioritize my young children and the private life we are creating as a family I do not plan to be involved in politics in 2024. Close quote. What do you make of Ivanka's statement? Well, there is a need to avoid legal liability, if at all possible, from the you know various prosecutions that have been talked about as possibly descending upon the Trump family. Also, more than any of the other Trump kids, Ivanka and Jared Kushner actually, before Trump became president, had a life that encompassed sort of general high society, not just the far right. And I don't know that they want to keep on being exiled from that. I also think they probably suspect Trump won't win. And so what the heck? They're cutting their losses in, in several senses. Ivanka is cutting her losses. Harold Meyerson, readamitprospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to have you on the show. Always good to be here, John. 
Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about what happened in the election in Southern California, starting with the sheriff. The L.A. County Sheriff has more than 10,000 sworn deputies and 8,000 more employees to police the biggest county in the country, 10 million people, and the biggest jail system in the world, known for its horrible conditions. Uh, the sheriffs in California are elected, and in 2018, an incumbent sheriff in L.A. was defeated for the first time in more than a century, and L.A. County elected its first Latino sheriff in modern history, Alex Villanueva. He was a reformer supported by the ACLU and all the forces of good in Southern California, but then he became the biggest political problem we had in L.A. because he did all the things he promised not to do. Now he's up for re-election. For comment, we turn to Gustavo Ariano. He's an indispensable columnist for the LA Times, covering, as he says, Southern California everything. He describes himself as the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Gracias as always, John. So in the election, the challenger in the sheriff's race, former Long Beach police chief Robert Luna, increased his lead over the incumbent Villanueva. Currently, as we speak on Tuesday, it's 60% for Luna, 40% for Villanueva, with 70% of the vote counted. On election night, I was there at Robert Luna's celebration party in Long Beach, which was alongside another Robert, Robert Garcia, who won his congressional race, first gay immigrant in Southern California, I believe, he's Latino from Peru, to get into Congress, former uh, mayor of Long Beach. The initial result had Luna up by 55%. Then it shrunk a little bit, so I thought, oh, this is going to be tighter this is going to be as tight as the mayoral race. But no, Luna has just been increasing his lead. Every single result so far since Election Day, every single update has shown Ru Luna increasing his lead. And I would think, though, more tellingly, there was also a measure that L.A. County voters voted on that gave the Board of Supervisors the power to remove any sitting sheriff with a four-fifth supermajority. That one from the start has been overwhelmingly approved by, I think the last count was 70% of the voters. So there's definitely antagonism by LA, most of LA County against Villanueva, and they went to the ballot box and proved it. Assuming now that Villanueva concedes one of these days and sure. <laughs> Robert Luna becomes the sheriff, what kind of sheriff do you think he will be? For starters, let's talk about the jails. As I said, the L.A. sheriff runs the largest jail system in the world. The ACLU here has been suing the sheriff about the jails for, I don't know, 40 years or something like that. The latest lawsuit, the uh, ACLU won in September when a federal court judge ordered L.A. County to fix the jail's inmate reception center, the IRC, after the lawyers for the uh, sheriff conceded there was horrific treatment of people confined at the jail's booking facility. Uh, attorneys for the ACLU found people chained to chairs for days, 
dozens sleeping head to head on concrete, uh, open defecation, no sanitation, medication withheld, people with mental health needs waiting for days in the IRC because there's no more jail beds available. Do you think the new sheriff, Robert Luna, will fix the jails? Oh, geez. This is a department that, when was it not a reign of terror? I mean, you go back to ever. I, I think just sheriff's departments in general. I have a, a general antipathy toward departments like that, and especially the people at the top. Something about that position makes folks drunk with power. And then object. That's my that's my columnist voice. My objective voice says this is a department where just two sheriffs ago, three sheriffs ago, with Lee Baca went to federal prison along with his undersheriff for corruption. Uh, Jim McDonald, who was a former sheriff of Long Beach or former police chief of Long Beach, Robert Luna's former boss, he got elected for one term because the deputies turned on him because he was trying to make some reform. So Luna comes in inherits all the problems that McDonald and also even Villanueva tried to fix. And on top of that, has a, a deputies union that was against them, has deputy gangs that are still part of the L.A. Sheriff's Department, have activists who are not happy with Luna because uh, at the Long Beach Police Department, Luna had his own controversies. His department was using like a text messaging system that immediately deleted text, didn't save him at all. And Luna said, oh, that was our mistake. We didn't do it. But people accused him of trying to not be transparent. During the protests of George Floyd, Long Beach Police Department officers, they fired non-lethal weaponry at reporters. Uh, Adolfo Guzman Lopez from KPCC got hit into the neck. Cerise Castle from Knock It LA also got hit. These are, and Luna never really said much about it. So he's going to have critics from left and right. By all accounts, Luna himself is a nice guy, but... I don't uh, the people who even support him, they've told me that you don't need a nice guy right now to try to reform this department. And also, I have to say, we kind of heard this story four years ago, a guy, a Democrat coming in, saying he's going to upend the incumbency and selling everyone a message of I am not the incumbent. I am more liberal than incumbent. And we all know how what happened with Villanueva. What about his relationship with the L.A. County D.A., George Gascon, who is a famous leader of progressive district attorneys in the United States. Gascon just sent out an email saying that a criminal justice reform advocate is leading in the race for L.A. uh, sheriff. Uh, Villanueva, of course, was a a declared enemy of L.A.'s progressive D.A. Do you think uh, when Robert Luna becomes the new sheriff, he's going to have a friendly working relationship with our progressive D.A.? Luna from the start has said you need to have a working relationship with all the arms of L.A. County government when you're the sheriff. If you you cannot attack, you cannot be at odds with people just because you don't like them. And of course, there's going to be clashes. Uh, you know, he again, he comes in as a nice guy, but. At the end, he's still the head of the sheriff's department. He's gonna have to he, he's gonna have to win over his deputies first before anyone else. With Gascon, yes, he is a leader of uh, having a more progressive district attorney's 
offices across the country. On the other hand, his office just announced that they declined to file charge against charges against the deputies who shot and killed Dejan Kizzy, uh, you know, a black man who uh, whose death led to a lot of protests. And there's a lot of these other things there. I mean, it'll remain to be seen what Luna does because he had his own uh, police department in Long Beach have to pay out millions of dollars in wrongful death uh, lawsuits. It's going to happen. I mean, these things happen again and again. I will say on election night, though, he told his audience, which were progressives, friends of mine who were there, deputies wearing the Blue Lives Matter uh, little pin on their lapels. And he said, like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm the type of sheriff that when something goes wrong, I look myself in the mirror and I ask myself, you know, it, or basically tell myself it's on me. So that's better than Villanueva, who blamed everyone on the planet except himself and the chip on his shoulder. And then let's talk about the L.A. mayoral race. That, of course, between Karen Bass, a member of Congress, former head of the Congressional Black Caucus, former community organizer in South L.A. She currently has 52% of the vote, while billionaire developer and former Republican Rick Caruso has 48%. Officially, it's still rated too close to call, but everybody is now saying Karen Bass will win. L.A. will get its first woman mayor. Rick Caruso famously spent $100 million of his own money. He targeted the Latino vote. Here you have expertise that we really need. I've heard from you that he did not just spend his $100 million on ads on Spanish language media, that he actually had a, a genuine ground game in Latino neighborhoods. Tell us about that. Well, look, when you're a billionaire and you could spend $100 million of your own money, you're going to hire some of the best and brightest in the business. And they wisely told Rick, you just can't write checks and do ads from, uh, you know, the Grove or the brand at Americana. So Rick was <laughs> pounding that pavement. I mean, he went to Boyle Heights, the very famous Latino neighborhood right next to East L.A. at least seven times, spending hours talking to business people. I went to one of his events there and I could tell you that. The love for him there was real. It's interesting because, of course, across the country, people are saying that Latinos save democracy by going for uh, the Senate, the Democrats in both Arizona and Nevada. But in Los Angeles, at least it'll remain to be seen how Latinos finally voted, because the polls leading up to the race, literally the weekend before Election Day by the L.A. Well, sponsored by the L.A. Times, but done by Berkeley, showed Latinos as the only ethnic group that supported Rick Caruso for mayor and also that supported Alex Villanueva for sheriff. If that holds, I think it's going to be a very fascinating analysis of what happened because, look, L.A. still, you know, use whatever shade of blue, of deep blue that you like. Was it emerald blue, <laughs> aqua blue? I'm not good. I'm not good with colors, but it is. It, it absolutely is very, very blue. But if Latinos, who are a, a majority of the residents in L.A. County now, I think uh, uh, still a minority of the votes, except about, I think about 35 percent, if they went for the more conservative Democrat, what does that tell us about Latino voters in one of the most liberal areas, big cities in the United States? Yeah. And of course, it's been a Republican dream, at least since Nixon, that Latinos should support Republicans in part because the blacks support the Democrats. Ever since Nixon, Republicans have said, you know, Latinos should be more conservative. They should be more Republicans because the, the stereotype is they're more family oriented than black people. They're more hardworking than black yeah. people. They're more 
Catholic. They have more self-reliance than black people. This is all the stereotype that Republicans have built on. And of, and of course, as you say, LA is Democratic, but Rick Caruso was a Republican until a couple of years ago. As you say, this is a key testing ground for the longer term Republican, I mean, decades old conservative strategy of recruiting um, Latinos as out of antagonism to blacks in part. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Republican Party has always tried to do that, especially with Latinos. Uh, Ronald Reagan, he didn't say it. Actually, it was one of his advisors, but famously associated with him saying Latinos are Republicans. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> and I, I have always maintained there's an element, a big element of truth to that, except that the Republicans screwed it up for the past quarter century by pursuing xenophobic policies. The fact, yes, that even Trump was able to gain more votes from Latinos in 2020 and that the Latino percentage now that go for Republicans, like 39 percent, even in this supposed red trickle, I think that still says a lot. But imagine if the Republican Party wasn't so fascist, wasn't so against democracy, didn't support such whack job candidates across the country and had maintained a semblance of normalcy for the, at least the past 20 years. I mean, look, we're now in, in a part where George W. Bush was got about 40% of the Latino vote and he was advocating for amnesty. Imagine if the Republican Party continued that way. Latinos would have been the Irish and Italians of a previous generation, the ones who were so for Kennedy and by Reagan had forsaken the Democratic Party largely for good. But hey, that's all on Republicans. And all, you know, I would also say so on Democrats as well for not being, for keeping. Uh, Latinos as just, yeah, of course, you're going to vote for us. So why should we even bother with you folks? You know, you cannot ever uh, just think someone's going to be there for you. And just one footnote, we always have to remind our listeners, Latinos are not a single unified group. The Latinos of Los Angeles County are primarily Mexican-Americans and Central Americans. That's not the case in Florida. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Florida, of course, is ruby red Republican now because of Latinos, Venezolanos, basically refugees from what they say are like socialist uh, demons, whether it's, uh, you know, Castro, uh, Hugo Castro back in the day, Nicolas Maduro, the Castros, of course, in Cuba and uh, elsewhere. But yeah, that that's a completely different thing. But also, I would say in Southern California, you have those Mexican-Americans like myself who grew up with you know, what I call Rancho Libertarianism, where your families did come from rural areas, rural areas, almost anywhere, uh, at least in Mexico, are going to be a little bit more individualistic, a little bit more libertarian. But then once we come up here and you hear Republicans, you hear Republicans calling your uncles and parents invaders, you have hmm. Democrats taking us for granted. Well, yeah, you're probably going to go Democrat, but you're not going to be uh, beholden to Democrats. And I, you know, well, again, I, I we're only a week away. We Week after election day. So in a couple of weeks, we'll have more results, more uh, uh, people just putting the screws on the election results and putting them geographically and ethnically. I can't wait for that. One other race in Southern California I want to talk about in uh, Orange County, our candidate, Katie Porter, seems like she will be reelected. But there was a very disturbing uh, defeat for Democrats, the victory of an incumbent Republican, Michelle Steele, who's Korean-American, over Jay Chen, the Democrat who's Taiwanese-American. This is the race where 
uh, the Republicans ran a TV ad that featured actors portraying Chinese Communist Party intelligence officers saying about the Democratic candidate, quote, he's one of us, a socialist comrade who even supported Bernie Sanders for supreme leader. One man says, and there's a photo of the Chinese communist president on the wall behind them. And then a title appears, Jay Chen, he's perfect for communist China. And the two men throw their heads back and erupt in maniacal laughter. <laughs> uh, Gustavo, is Jay Chen perfect for communist China? Of course not. And he's also a veteran. So shame on Michelle Steele for pursuing those pathetic tactics. But there's no surprise. Her husband is Sean Steele, former uh, chair of the California Republican Party. So he's someone who knows trash politics because he is trash politics. When Michelle Steele also her district is very bizarre. It was redistricted in 2020 or, you know, 2020. So for this one, this is the first time she's running for it. And it basically goes from Little Saigon. So the capital of Vietnamese of the Vietnamese diaspora in the United States, if not the world, and then goes upward and extends out to Fullerton. So it gets it's a very Asian district. It was created like that. Also with her fellow Korean-American Republican Congresswoman, uh, Young Kim. These were two districts that were created specifically with having an Asian-American uh, representative in mind. So what Michelle did is just, I mean, it's, I, you would remember this more than me, out of the days of Bob Dornan and these old school caveman Republican politics that sadly still have an audience in Little Saigon, which is fervently anti-communist, fervently also immigrant, so buys into that stuff. I mean, I have to say, it, even in like more Latino areas of Southern California, I saw campaign mailers who had that sort of, I mean, I hate to say just cheap politics, uh, black and white blurry photos of people making all sorts of ad hominem attacks. They work, especially when you have an uninformed electorate that uh, is not paying attention. So shame on Michelle and shame on the voters who voted for her. But hey, it's Orange County. Republican Party didn't make the comeback that they wanted to, but they're still alive. This was not the death knell for the Republican Party just yet. So Orange County remains purple and Orange County remains a place uh, where people are going to be fighting. Gustavo Ariano, the indispensable columnist for the LA Times. Gracias, Gustavo. Gracias to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. December 6th is the Georgia Senate runoff when our man, incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock, will face former football star Herschel Walker again. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? She covered the November 8th Georgia campaigns for the magazine from Atlanta. We reached her today back home in Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Good to hear you. Well, Raphael Warnock got 1,941,000 votes. Herschel Walker got 1,906,000 votes. That's a victory margin of 35,000 votes out of almost 4 million cast. And there were 82,000 votes for a libertarian candidate. But, of course, now that the Democrats have carried Nevada, 
they will control the Senate whether or not Warnock wins the runoff. So unlike 2020, the Georgia runoff will not decide control of the Senate and, you know, the future of humanity. Uh, how will that affect Georgia voters? This is the big question everybody wants the answer to. Some say it will take the wind out of Republican sales, even if they vote for the unqualified and problematic Herschel Walker, Republicans still won't control the Senate. So a lot of Republicans will stay home for the runoff. What do you think? I think that is more likely than Democrats staying home. I, I think the Democrats last week were very disappointed in uh, Stacey Abrams losing her bid for governor by much a much larger margin than she did in 2018 and were a little bit chastened by Senator Warnock getting so close to that 50% he needed, but not getting over the line. I'm talking to some people who say there's been kind of a reckoning with turnout problems, uh, lack of enthusiasm, uh, sketchy ground games, et cetera, to kind of make up for what happened last week and also bring Senator Warnock across the finish line. Democrats are getting clearer about why it matters so much that they win that 51st seat. It's not over or like shrug. Okay, Kamala Harris can just sit in that chair every time the Senate is in session and cast the tie-breaking vote. It's it's huge. It will make it easier to, to confirm nominees, to confirm judicial appointments. It also lets Kamala Harris do other things. Uh, she, has a, she has another job. And so I think Democrats are getting hopped up about it. And I think Walker is such a disaster. Republicans will have a hard time getting excited about it. What about the 80,000 people who voted for the Libertarian candidate? What will they do in the runoff? They did make it clear they did not want to vote for Herschel Walker, even if that meant electing Raphael Warnock. I think they probably stay home. Uh, you know, I, I think that Walker is a deeply unpopular character. He trailed Brian Kemp, the governor, the incumbent governor, by about 300,000 votes. So without Kemp on the ticket, running by himself with more energized Democrats, God knows what kind of scandals we're going to hear about in the three weeks to come. I just don't think there's a whole lot of excitement about about him uh well let's know. talk uh, let's talk about the campaign that that herschel walker did run you were there uh i just called him unqualified and problematic that doesn't really cover what is the problem with him well he admits that he once threatened to kill his wife he admits that he seem, seemingly forgot that he had fathered three or four kids that hadn't ever appeared on his campaign biographies he denies that he coerced two women into abortions, but they're both pretty credible women, uh, and many people believe them. He did pay for those abortions. He's just a nice man. Uh, <laughs> I guess <no>. that's it. <laughs> I think that's all it is. I think that a lot of people held their nose, but if you look at, again, if you look at Kemp, a lot of Republicans couldn't bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker, and I don't see what changes that. So... Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic about about the runoff. I saw that Herschel Walker opened the his runoff campaign by accusing Raphael Warnock of stoking racism, driving up crime, hating the military, and misrepresenting the Bible. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, Reverend Warnock 
is actually a reverend. He runs the church that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. used to run, uh, storied Ebenezer Baptist Church. He's a scholar. So that's ridiculous. One thing about the Warnock campaign that was interesting, I think he knew that he was probably headed for a runoff. And uh, the closing days of the campaign anyway, where when I saw him, he was really hyping his work for the military, his work uh, to keep open military bases and shore up military bases. Georgia is a very military state. His work on behalf of veterans and farmers. It was not as much of a an appeal to the base as one might have expected or that you even saw earlier in the campaign. He really highlighted his bipartisan work. So this this just doesn't this just doesn't land. Yeah, I saw that uh, Reverend Warnock began his runoff campaign with with this statement, quote, this race is about competence and it's about character. The choice between me and Herschel Walker is clear. Some things in life are complicated. This isn't one of them. <laughs> Very good. He, he was a little bit reticent to hit Walker on the character issues, but he, but in the closing days, he, you know, he did it a few times. I guess I didn't even know about this, John. There, there, he claimed to, we know he claimed to be a, a police officer with his fake badges. He's not a police officer. Apparently he had a, a business that actually didn't really exist. I mean, there are so many problems with with him, his competence and his character. Um, And I think Warnock was a little bit reluctant to go all in on that. And I saw his campaign manager quoted as saying something like, you know, we wanted to keep the reverend, the reverend, you know, above the fray, a good Christian man who's not going to tear down his brother. But I think, I don't know, he's going to tear him down. I think he's just going to talk truth about him. Uh, somewhat more. I think he has to in this in this runoff. Well, the Republican campaign obviously can't argue on the merits that Herschel Walker is a qualified and competent uh, candidate. Their argument has to be that a vote for Herschel Walker is a vote against Joe Biden. They have to kind of nationalize this. But since the Democrats will control the Senate, whatever happens in Georgia, that's not really a very convincing or powerful argument at this point. Yeah, and I think Herschel Walker get will get really tripped up explaining to you what I explained a little while ago about how <laughs> 149 gives the Democrats a lot more power to specifically confirm Biden nominees and also, you know, takes power out of the hands of Joe Manchin and some power out of the hands of Manchin and or cinema. I, I think that's going to be a tough, tough thing for him to explain. And I want to talk about the money factor here. The Georgia Senate race was the most expensive single campaign in 2022. Warnock raised $99 million for the November campaign and spent $76 million. Walker raised only $37 million and spent $32 million. And most of all this money went on TV ads. If you add in the independent groups, I read $195 million was spent on radio and TV ads. And now, of course, our email boxes are filled this morning with appeals for more money, which they probably are going to spend on more negative TV ads. Haven't Georgia, you were in Georgia, haven't Georgians seen enough negative TV ads in the last uh, month for a lifetime or another three weeks of negative ads going to change any votes? Uh, You know, it's easy to criticize negative ads, but often they work. One thing I will say about the TV spending, a lot of grassroots people were, you know, to put it artfully, kind of pissed off about it. They felt like it would have been better spent by both the Abrams and Warnock campaign, but particularly Warnock, 
some of it would be better spent on shoring up the network of grassroots groups that helped. They, they weren't solely responsible for the runoff wins in 2021, but they felt like they got a lot less attention, a lot, a lot less attention was placed on the ground game. And all this money went to TV ads, which, you know, also means it goes to the Democratic consultants who buy the TV ads and make the TV ads and purchase the TV ads. So it leaves a little bit left a little bit of a negative taste in, in people's mouths. And I don't know what the holidays coming up will have to do with it, but I think there is something like, oh, my God, we don't want to be seeing all this negativity as we're trying to, you know, get ready to for the most wonderful time of the year, which yeah. I don't consider it that I prefer fall. But, you know, that's, that's what people say. Yeah, turnout is going to be everything, everything. In, in December. And it is true, negative ads might depress the turnout of your opponent a little bit, but but really it's the individual contact to be sure that your base and your supporters get to the polls, send in their mail ballots. That is what's going to win right. this race. It is my humble opinion, not, not more TV ads. And I'm sure lots of people in Georgia feel the same, the same way. Definitely. We have to talk about the Trump factor here. What, what can you tell us about Trump's place in the, in the runoff? I expect all of this naysaying from other Republicans that's happened in the last week since the election results were clear, that blaming it on him somehow, that's not going to make him back down. That's going to make him run. That's my prediction. I think that's very bad for Herschel Walker. I think the more Trump is top of mind, the, the worse it is uh, for, for Walker. I think Trump will also, whatever he does, very much want to go to Georgia. And I think that would also be bad for Herschel Walker. Trump is a chaos agent and, and a dangerous guy. And I think he, he will play a role in this runoff. And I don't think that will be good for Walker either. Now we hear a little bit of a dog uh, crying in the background there. T say a few words about your wonderful dog. Sadie, why are you whining? My wonderful dog is Sadie. If you follow me on Twitter, you know Sadie very well. Yes. Um, a very healthy, happy 13 and a half. But whenever I start talking on the phone or especially Zoom calls, which we're doing, she just gets very jealous and the whining begins. If you hear whining, she's not being mistreated. She's just a little jealous. She didn't like me being in Georgia. She really picked up a lot when you mentioned Trump, I noticed. She definitely did. I, I think that's probably what it is. <laughs> and then there's one other Trump-related factor in both the regular November election and now the December runoff. Trump told Republicans in 2020 not to trust voting by mail and not to trust the voting machines when, where you vote in person because there's this, you know, gigantic world conspiracy against him. How much do you think that might have affected Republican voting in Georgia this year? I don't know, but it's we, we know it had a, I wrote about this at the time. It had a clear effect on the 2021 runoff. Turnout was really depressed in a lot of the white, rural, Trumpy counties. People listened to him. People said, Biden stole the election. Why should we trust this one? I saw a really interesting thing in the exit polling that Brian Kemp's voters were very, very likely, I want to say 70% thought that it was possible the election had been stolen. They didn't believe that uh, Biden was the president. So I think there is an undercurrent of we still can't trust elections. And we came out for Brian Kemp 
But I, I think that the combination of demoralization, it's not going to make a difference in who controls the Senate, lingering doubts about Walker, his overall unpopularity, and let's say it, perhaps some good old racism. They just might not be able to get out there right after Thanksgiving and before Christmas for, you know, that guy. So I don't know. Finally, we have to talk about Stacey Abrams. She lost, as you said, for a second time by a bigger margin than the first time. Over the past decade, she's responsible for bringing hundreds of thousands of new voters to the polls. She built this huge voter registration and turnout machine that helped Joe Biden carry Georgia in 2020, helped the state elect its first Jewish and black senators, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock that gave Democrats control of the Senate. You know, Stacey Abrams in 2020 saved Joe Biden, saved the Senate, really saved America, you know, for, saved the world from Donald Trump, really. She lost this time for many reasons. Probably the most important is she's running against an incumbent who actually uh, people liked for partly for the good reasons that he stood up to uh, Trump and refused to reverse the election results in Georgia in 2020. I noticed that Brian Kemp also, just months before the election, gave $350 of state money to every poor person in Georgia. Uh, you think that helped? Oh, I think that helped a lot. I think, you know, he, he, he did cut taxes. He did, you know, mostly went to rich people, but poor people did, did see something. You've got to mention sexism. I'm sorry. I, you know, we, we have a really hard time electing female executives. I mean, Kathy Hochul was reelected, which is great in New York. But in general, that that level job is is tough for women to get, and especially black women. And so I, I think there was some of that. There was also a sense, and I don't really know how to take this or how to put it, but I heard it from even her allies that her national presence, she became a star even in losing. And as much as she did for the Democratic Party, at the same time, you know, she gave the 2019 State of the Union rebuttal against Trump. She pretty much put herself out there running for vice president. If a man did that, would that be so bad? I don't know. But she I think she was punished by it. And there was a sense that she got a lot of money from outside the state, that she really had become a national celebrity. And her ground game was criticized, too. I mean, people didn't think it was as robust. We're going to be looking at the numbers and talk. I'm going to be talking to people to try to report this out a little better. But that's that's what I heard on the ground. But it was really it was very depressing. I admire her. I look forward to what she does in the future. And I do think she deserves supreme credit for what she pulled off in 2018, as well as 2020 and 21. Yeah. And yeah. just big picture, if I'd asked you, you know, a couple of years ago, what would happen in Georgia if a black woman challenged the white man who was the incumbent governor in a state where black people are 30% of the population in a country where no black woman has ever been elected governor, what would you say? She's brave. She's, <laughs> yeah. Oh, girl. Um, no, you know, just describing it that way is, is really tough. But she was Stacey Abrams. And I, I don't want to criticize Senator Warnock for this. He did better than she did. But there was a sense, there was some distance between them. They didn't campaign up together very often. There was a sense that he was distancing himself somewhat, that he knew that his lane was more down the middle. And people had had some mixed feelings about that as well. I reported on 2020 and 21 in Georgia from my COVID home office. I didn't get to go there. And I really would have expected that 2022 would have been this gorgeous coming together of, you know, 
everyone, the multiracial coalition and, you know, Abrams and Warnock together and Ossoff together everywhere. And that definitely didn't happen. Um, Ossoff campaigned with her a fair amount. The big question is what's next for Stacey Abrams? I have no idea. I have, I'm hoping to talk to her this week. I hope she takes a, a really great vacation. Well, she can't take a great vacation because she's got to be out there working for the Reverend. And uh, are you going back to Georgia for the runoff? We'll see. Obviously. Sadie says no. <laughs> Sadie says no. Joan Walsh, read her reports on Georgia at the nation.com. Joan, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It was fun. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music